Well, before we uh, get going, I know there are some new college students, returning college students, and uh, I too want to welcome you. Uh, we're glad you're here, and if there are any parents in the room this week, I know there's a few last, but if there are any parents, welcome to you. Uh, also, uh, I'm looking around the room someplace, Jason and Stephanie Kelly. Jason taught Sunday school. Is, Jason might be in the back room, but Jason and Stephanie Kelly run our um, uh, student college and young adult uh, ministry, uh, along with Nathan Hur. He's someplace in the building in the back row. And, and so if you are a, a new student or are interested in that whatsoever, you need to contact those uh, folks. They will be an encouragement to you, and they will challenge you. They'll love you if uh, you're a part of that ministry and end up attending this fellowship. And I know that there are a lot of perhaps students here for the first time that are looking for a, a church home, and you come here this morning to do that in part, and we're thankful again that you're here. But I know the reality, because I've done this for a number of years, I know the reality is some of you may not return, depending on a number of issues, circumstances, etc. So this morning, before we start off in the book of John, I wanted to offer just a little bit of pastoral advice, if I could on how to consider choosing a, a new uh, home. Uh, my comments are not exhaustive by any means. You might be exhausted by the time you hear them. Um, but there's a whole lot more that I could say on all of these, and I really mean that. I have told myself as I was sitting there praying, don't run tangents. And so you can pray for me that too, because uh, I tend to do that. So I'm going to try to keep it concise, and you'll go, we need a definition of concise. And uh, I got that too. Uh, I actually appreciated your uh, description of old. Uh, that was very helpful. Yeah, that was very helpful. If it's green and grows hair, it's probably old, right? <laughs> right. Uh, my, my comments this morning here at the front are primarily directed towards college students, but they're applicable to a number of you in the room, because I know there's a number of people that are, are in the room, visitors perhaps, and you're also trying to decide uh, if this might be your... Uh, uh, new church home. And, but then I also thought, well, you know, this is helpful for all of us. I haven't done this for a couple of years. And, and so it's just a good review for all of us. Now, to begin with, I want to say this. Choosing a church home is one of the most important decisions you're ever going to make. And, and it's going to affect your life uh, greatly, uh, not, not just over the next few years, but the church that you choose to be a part of could affect your life in total and your descendants' lives for generations to come after you. Now, I know that sounds like an ominous uh, statement, but it is a reality. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your future. There's an old phrase that says, Doctrines received, believed, and practiced determines one's character, behavior, and destiny. Doctrines received, and believed, and practiced determine one's character, behavior, and destiny. And that's an immensely true statement. Doctrines are truths that you believe about God, that you receive, you hear, you believe them, bring them into your, uh, into your life, and then you receive, believe, and practice, uh, again, determines how you're going to live your life. Uh, what you believe about God determines how you live in time. And so it's an immensely important decision. So I'm going to give you a number of them here. Some of them are going to be a little bit longer, and some of them are going to be pretty short and concise, just so we can move on to John. Uh, but number one, you want to make sure that you find a church home uh, where they put a tremendous emphasis on the truth where they put a tremendous emphasis on the truth, a, a church that is faithful to the text of Scripture. Because, listen, the Bible alone, the Bible alone is the absolute sufficient source of all matters in life and godliness. So find a church that puts a high emphasis on biblical teaching, biblical preaching, biblical training, a church that teaches, that practices expositional preaching, and then asks you, encourages you to apply all that you learn into your daily life. 
And, and uh, expositional preaching is, is very simply that which is focused on the meaning of the scripture in the historical grammatical context. We want to understand what it meant by the authorial intent. We want to understand what it meant to the original hearers. So rather than preaching in a manner that tries to take the Bible into the modern day, expositional preaching takes the modern day and takes it back into the time of the Bible that tries to present it in its original setting because by doing that, the Bible becomes a living event. And by taking the modern person back into the culture of the Scripture, again, we can understand the Scripture the same way that the original hearers understood that Scripture and then applied it into their lives. It is a tremendous mistake of infinite uh, error to ask the question, what does that mean? What does the text mean until we understand exactly what the text, or what does it mean to me until we understand what the text means, right? And that's a lot of Bible study. What is that? Well, I feel like this means to me, and it makes me feel like this. Well, that's good, I guess, but we really are not concerned about that until we understand what it actually says. And what does it mean by what it says? So expositional preaching helps that. Expositional preaching is, is important because when faithfully followed, the, expos- the expositor works through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, year after year, and they have to deal with all of it. I often told you, if you've been here for any time, you may not like what I say on a Sunday morning. I may not like exactly what I say on a Sunday morning. You hear it for an hour. I hear it all week long. Right? It's the Word of God that does, our, that, that does its work in our heart. So we don't take things out of context. We don't skip over. I'm not, I'm not doing these verses this morning because they're kind of difficult. They might offend somebody. That's not the issue. It's not my word. Right? I, I have no right to, to edit the, the voice of God. And, and, and when you're looking for a church, you need to find a church that has a high commitment to the word of God. Listen, let me tell you this. This is honest truth. You, you don't need short sermons, warm stories, or entertainment. You don't need spicy illustrations. You don't need gadgets. You don't need humor. You, need, you don't need contemporary cultural relevance. What you need is you need God's word. You need God's word. I need God's word. We don't need soft preaching that caters to our felt needs and then demands nothing of us. If you're here for any length of time, you'll hear a truth that's often repeated, that soft preaching produces hard hearts, and hard preaching produces soft hearts. Soft preaching produces hard hearts. Hard preaching produces soft hearts because hard biblical preaching forces us all to examine ourselves, to examine our lives in the light of the scripture to see if we match up, if we line up. Hard preaching, hard biblical preaching breaks down our pride. It breaks down our self-centeredness, our selfishness. And it brings us all to the same place. It it brings us all to a place of submission uh, to the word of God. Therefore, it makes us desire to worship and to glorify God more. Soft preaching, on the other hand, makes people hard. Soft preaching makes people hard because it only superficially wounds. It feeds people's self-centered preoccupations. And in the end, it produces people that are hard and cold, people who are self-centered, people who are subjective, people who are not preoccupied uh, with the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And did we not sing, Jesus is all I need? Did we sing that this morning? Brother, did we sing that song? Did we sing it or are we just saying words? Do we actually mean what we say when we walk into the room here? We happen to believe that Christ is all we need. I, I don't go into a tangent. I'm trying to stop myself like seven times already. 
I listened to a sermon that one of my kids was thinking about going to a church, and the guy was 15 minutes into his 30-minute sermon, had 37 different illustrations, and never opened the book. Son, run as far and fast as you can from that fellowship. We need to sit under the teaching of the Word of God, and Christ is all we need. We don't need soft preaching. We need to have our flesh slain. We need to have the new created you in Christ raised up, challenged, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for a deeper understanding with God, a deeper fellowship with God. Again, the God who passes over, towers over this passing pitiful world that's perishing. And again, the expositional preaching of the Word of God accomplishes that. Because every word that comes out of the text of Scripture is it's the breath of God. It comes out of the very breath of God himself. Again, we don't edit God. I don't have license to edit God. It's his word, not mine. It happens to be his church, not mine, not yours. It's his word, his church. Therefore, we give every word detailed attention because God wants to reveal himself to us. God wants us to know who he is. And the Bible, again, gives us that great privilege of doing that. Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, for the most part, again, around here, week by week, we don't normally do these uh, kind of topical things that I'm doing a little bit at the front. I'm going to get into the book of John here in a moment. Week by week, normally from this pulpit, we just go through one book after another book. Chapter after chapter, verse by verse, year by year. I've been here, this is going on my 17th year. And that's the guys that we do. We don't change. Nothing changes. Somebody, I can't remember who it was, a couple weeks ago came to me and it was a great encouragement. said, I've been gone for 10 years. I came back and you're doing the same thing you were doing 10 years ago. Amen. I don't need to have anything new. Okay? My friend Gordon, we're always talking about these kind of things. And I say to him, brother, if we just hang in there and keep doing the old things, we're dinosaurs. I got that. If we keep doing the old things, it'll keep coming around in the next cycle. We'll be innovative because we actually teach the Bible. You know, something a lot of people don't get much of. Right? So we just do the same thing. And you know what? When we go through the Bible, we go through the Bible slow. Because slower is better than faster. We go slow. We work our way carefully through a text of Scripture that allows us to go deep into the Scripture because deep biblical preaching produces, listen, deep biblically thinking individuals, biblically literate individuals, biblically rich individuals who develop a deeper understanding of and a greater love for the persons of God in Christ. Shallow preaching produces shallow people a guy getting up and telling stories about his vacation is not helpful to any of us deep expositional slow preaching because we all <laughs> desperately need a greater understanding of the person of god in christ right and the only way we get that is through the, 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 the word god wants us to know him, know him and we desperately need to grasp the truth that he has left us we need to have a greater understanding of his compassion and his great love for us the greatness of his love and a greater understanding of the power that works in us. A lot of believers are spiritually impoverished because they're starved to death biblically. Because they've never been taken into the depth of the word. They've ne never learned how to feed themselves upon the word of God. Therefore, they're starving. So find a church where they put a tremendous emphasis on truth. Number two, find a church that has a high view of sound doctrine. A church that has high view of sound doctrine. A church that holds to a literal six-day creation to the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, depravity of man, a proper understanding of Christ's work on the cross, 
uh, his death, burial, bodily resurrection, the fact that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, uh, a church that believes in a literal second coming of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that believes in the ordinances of baptism, communion, and, and preaches uh, and, and practices those things. And I probably should add to the list uh, a, a, a church that actually believes this is the word of God, right? That this actually is the word of God. Number three, find a church that has a high view of God. A church that has a high view of God, a church that believes in the supremacy of a the supremacy of God over all things, even the sovereignty of God over all aspects of salvation. A church that desires to seriously honor God with their lives and, and realizes that their view of God really is going to affect their lives and their families' lives on a daily basis. Proverbs nine and ten says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me tell you something. God's not your homeboy. He's not your homie. He's not your buddy. And he's not your pal. And he is not to be treated frivolously or trivially uh, trivially or, or casually. He is the most high God. And he is to be reverenced. He is to be worshipped. He is to be feared. And you and I must have an understanding and an appreciation of his holiness. He is not like us. And we have to have an absolute reverence for his person. But when we have a proper view, a high view of the person of God, the person of Christ, everything else in our life will fall into place in the order that it should be in. Right? And, and, and to have a love for the, the, the person of Jesus Christ. Have a, have a, find a church that has a high view of truth, doctrinal truth. Number four, find a church that has a high view of Christ. Find a church that has a high view of Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, I would recommend you choose the church of which you would be a member and the pastor whom you would hear by this one thing, by how much of Christ there is in that church and how much of the Savior of Christ there is in that ministry. You need to find a church that loves the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 2 and 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. See to it that no one takes you captive. I absolutely guarantee you there are a whole lot of people in the modern church today that are being taken captive by the philosophies of men. They're being taken out. Because a great number, a great percentage, a large portion of the modern church has fully embraced worldly philosophies of men, such as critical race theory, and brought that right through the front door. They're not even hiding it. They brought it right through the front door, right into their fellowship, and they're trying in vain to try to put a Christian veneer over top of it. But what they have done, and what those leaders have done in those churches, quote-unquote leaders, is they've taken their people away from the glory and the sufficiency of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, did we not sing, Christ is all you need? Christ is all you need. Christ is what you need. Christ is what I need. I don't need to bring some kind of human philosophy in to reconcile the races since the Lord Jesus Christ himself has already done that. Amen? I have read the end of the book. I have gone to the book of the Revelation, and there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, nation of the world worshiping God, worshiping Christ, because that's what he does. We need a deeper understanding of Christ. Find a church that does that, a church that loves 
Christ and puts him on display. Number five, find a church that puts a high emphasis on the worship of God. And then I'm going to add in all of life. Find a church that puts a high emphasis on the worship of God in all of life. Because glorifying God, honoring God, is something that we do in every single aspect of our life. When you go to, when you go to school, it's an act of worship. I, I don't want to hear, I, I, I don't want to do my homework today because I'm sick of doing my... Then, then go do something else, dig a ditch. Somebody has paid a lot of money for you to go to school because some reason in your past they've thought that you're worthy of that kind of education and that you could use that education in your future to honor God, to honor Christ. It's an act of worship. If you happen to be a a ditch digger, then that's also an act of worship. Everything you do, the people who built this building worshiped God when they built the building. Because, again, you don't have to have pews. You don't have to have uh, um, stained glass. You could do this in a concrete enclosure. That's what our, some of our friends do in Russia, right? It's a concrete enclosure, no windows, one door, no restrooms, no electricity, no heat, air conditioning. Obviously, somebody who put this building together thought God was worthy of worship, worthy of honor. I'm going to put stained glass together because I want to honor Christ when the sun comes up from the east. I want people to, to look up at the glass and see uh, the glory of the person of Christ, at least a picture of it. Not in the notes, tangent, but I'm telling you what, sometimes in the morning, you can't look at that stained glass. I, you literally can't look at the stained glass because it just explodes with brightness and color. Everything in life, 24-7, as they say, is to the glory of God. Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 10 and 31. Whether you then you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of life is worship. Now I'm going to say this. I'm going to stop and, because Bruce mentioned it a little bit and it's on my mind too. I want to address the issue of worship through music. Because the Bible calls us to worship God in spirit and truth. Jesus Christ himself, John 4 and 23. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So true worship across the board and all of life is a response to the truth of God. It's a a response to who God is and how God has revealed himself to us on the pages of Scripture. So if we're going to have true worship of the true God... The God of truth, we have to have a proper understanding of who he is. That's why we put such a high emphasis here on, on the word of God, on preaching the word of God. Now here at Cornerstone Bible Church, we unashamedly, predominantly sing hymns. It doesn't mean we never sing choruses. Some might, sometimes we do. That we predominantly sing hymns. Because we place a high emphasis on doctrinal truth. And hymns usually have a higher uh, emphasis on doctrinal truth. And as Bruce said, we have a high emphasis here on corporate worship, congregational singing. I'm not saying anything derogatory towards anybody else, any other style, whatever. But I want you to know why we do what we do here, and we do it with great intentionality. And we tend to sing hymns versus praise choruses, because praise choruses are obviously very popular in the culture, very popular in the church. And for the most part, Praise choruses are just simple expressions of personal worship. For the most part, don't come and talk to me afterwards, because I said for the most part, 
Praise choruses lack a lot of doctrinal content. There's not a lot of biblical truth in most praise choruses. Praise choruses tend to be written with catchy tunes and catchy musical scores. And the music is driven by the instruments, the band. Again, you'll notice we don't have a band. When I walk into a building, when I'm attending some place of fellowship, the first thing I look for is the pulpit. And sadly, most of the places I walk into, there is no pulpit. There is a glass enclosure, high and lifted up, in the back with a set of drums in there. I guess you have to keep him in there because he might escape and do something uh, to the people in the congregation if you let him out. The next thing that normally happens is lights come on, and I'm going like this. I can't see because now the, it was just went dark, and now they're shooting lights at me in all different directions. And if it's really cool, you got smoke going. We don't have any of that. We have a piano player, and we have you. You're the you're the you're the orchestra. You are the you are the band. Because congregational worship, congregational singing, not only puts an emphasis on hymns, it puts an emphasis on doctrinal truths, corporate. And it puts an emphasis on a corporate expression. And again, the music in this building is driven by you. It's driven by the voices of the congregation. So if you want to fill the room, you fill the room with your voice. Now, I'm not speaking against any other form of music. I'm not speaking against praise choruses. We understand there's some good praise choruses, and we understand there's some very not-so-good hymns. I got that. But as a general rule, hymns are more biblical, and they generally are more deliberately didactic teaching than praise choruses. And I think we live in an absolute sad time in the modern history of the church where classical hymnody is in danger of being lost because most churches don't sing hymns anymore. And we sing a lot of old hymns. We actually sing some new hymns also. There are some good hymn writers, modern hymn writers, uh, the Gettys and the Townsends. Modern hymn writers with great doctrinal content to help us think deeply on the truth of the scripture and to help us think deeply on our God and the person of Christ. Now listen, when it comes to music and worship through music, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. With all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness. A lot of what is sung in the church today and a lot of what is written stirs the emotion and plays on the feeling. And in reality, it falls short of the, man, the mandate in Colossians 3 and 16 to teach, to admonish. And a lot of what is sung in the church today is very repetitive. And that repetition is built, built in intentionally to praise songs with the deliberate purpose for putting the intellect into a passive state so the worshiper must muster up as much emotion as possible. That's really completely opposite to what the scripture commands. Because again, worship through song is to be with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. We want to we teach you. We want to inform you. We don't want to manipulate you. Do we want our music to stir an emotion? Yes. But feelings can't lead worship. Our minds have to be challenged by the truth, encouraged by the truth, informed by the truth. So very simply, if we're going to sing about how great our God is, we need to know something about why our God is great. 
not just say the words. And I hope when you sing here on a Sunday morning, you're not just saying words. You actually take those words and you look at them. If you don't have time to look at them now, you look at them later. We say the words, we sing the words, and that stirs us to a greater understanding of truth. The other day I was coming back from our small group and flipped the radio on in, in mid-song. I get it, so I understand, but I heard a song on the radio that repeated the line, it's going to be okay. Have you heard that song? It's going to be okay. Five, six, seven, eight times in a row. It's going to be okay. 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 Well, you know what? I honestly have no reason why it's going to be okay. But I know it's going to be okay, and that's okay. Number six, and i got to move faster because I'm taking way too long here. Find a place, a church. Find a church that has a high emphasis on evangelism, a desire to reach out with the gospel of grace to everyone, making disciples, reproducing themselves in the lives of others, reproducing your life, your following of Christ in the life of others. Take your bulletin and look at the front of the cover of the bulletin. Every single book, every single week, take your bulletin and look at the front of your cover, the front cover of your bulletin. I would take mine, but I didn't get one because we don't have enough. I don't know who's in charge of that kind of thing, but we need to have more of them. (laughs) On the front, it gives our mission statement. Cornerstone Bible Church exists to give every man and woman and child repeated opportunities to hear, understand, and accept or reject the gospel without them having to come or go anywhere. That's the mission, the mission of Cornerstone Bible Church. You know what? happens to be the same mission that God has for the world. Because he sent the Son into the world to seek and to save the lost for his glory and the glory of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're part of Cornerstone Bible Church, then your personal mission, part of your mission should be this. To give every man and woman and child that you have come in contact with repeated opportunities to hear, understand, and accept or reject the gospel. And then it says without them having to come or go anywhere. Because you are the church. This building is a great place to meet and I love the stained glass. But this isn't the church. This is a building where we meet. We scatter. We meet together corporately on Sunday. We scatter throughout our various uh, places we come from. And each of us have that responsibility, that joy, that great privilege uh, of declaring the gospel. And I pray that you're doing that, looking for opportunities. Number seven, find a church to be a part of that loves each other. A church that loves each uh, each other. I think we have something very special going on here because I think there's a great, genuine care for each other in the fellowship here. Uh, we have a, a, a fellowship that desires to meet the needs of others, that is gracious towards others, that's not caught up into legalism or legalistic tendencies, that really practices a high uh, uh, emphasis on sincere faith and a high emphasis on unity. That's a place you want to be a part of, right? You want to be a part of a place that loves you and cares for you on, on your uh, in your spiritual condition. Number eight, find a church that practices church discipline. I wonder how many churches practice church discipline. A lot of the big mega churches don't even take communion anymore because they can't serve it. They can't deal with it. Some of the smaller churches that I've been to lately, they don't serve it either. You come get it. I'm like, what in the world? I got to go find it. I didn't know I had to go find it. When I walked in the room, nobody told me I had to go find it. Now it's time for communion. You got to go search all the way. I think it's there's some back over there. Maybe there's a thing. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Find a church that practices the ordinances. We have baptisms here all the time. It's wonderful. We take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. It's wonderful. We, do, we practice church discipline because it's not my church. It's not your church. 
Now, I know church discipline is not a very popular subject, and again, not very often practiced, but it's important because the Scriptures command it. That's why it's important. The Scriptures command it, and holiness is important in the fellowship. Now, again, not that anybody's perfect in the fellowship. We got that. But the purpose of church discipline is restorative. It's to restore a person, to call people back who are erring in habitual practices of sin, to call them back to righteous living, that they can be restored to the fellowship and enjoy the the blessings of the fellowship, to enjoy the blessings of the the body of Christ and communion with the Savior. A fellowship that practices church disciplines, uh, church discipline holds a high regard for the Word of God, and they hold a higher regard for the Word of God than they do the opinions of men. They hold a high regard for holiness, which it expects of its members. Because I read someplace that the word church means the called out ones, right? Is that true? The called out ones. The called out ones of what? Called out ones from where? Called out ones from a sinful, fallen, rebellious world. They're called out, separated from the world. Again, we're not perfect, but we should all be striving towards holiness. Amen? We shouldn't be acting like the world, looking like the world, living like the world. And when a brother or sister starts down that road, it is a loving responsibility to bring them back. I cannot stand when I see parents go, Johnny, you better not do that. And I'm going to count the three, one, two. When I told my kids not to do something, they better not do it. Or they might meet the Savior pretty soon. And you say, well, why would you do that? You're so mean. When little Johnny is about to run out into the road and to be run over by a truck, maybe little Johnny ought to learn to obey and stop the first time, right? And we just need to obey the word of God. It's not our church. We need to tell our brother and sister who's running off in the wrong direction, don't go there. I'm begging you, come back. That's church discipline. We pray that it never gets to the spot where it's excommunication. Happens occasionally. Not often. 17 years I've been here, three times. Most of the time, people just need somebody to call them back and say, look, you're, you're out of bounds. You run, you got the car in the wrong lane. Get back over here. And most of the time, people respond to that. That's a loving thing to do. Number nine, find a church that practices biblical male leadership. If none of the rest of them will light you up, this one will light you up. Find a church that practices biblical male leadership, biblical eldership, where the, church, the elders are actually looking after, caring for the, the, the sheep, the congregation, praying for the welfare of each individual member in the congregation. Because male leadership is biblical. Stated simply, the modern promotion of female so-called pastors is nothing more than a direct attack on the authority of the word of God. And that's going on everywhere. It's nothing more than a direct attack on the authority of the Word of God. 1 Timothy 2 and 11 says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, if God knows how to speak and words mean anything... The text says what it says, and it means exactly what it says. Paul, the apostle under the authority of the Holy Spirit, says, do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a woman. Why is that? Well, he tells you. Because God created Adam first, and then the woman. And because biblical leadership, leadership in Israel, was always from men, not women. Women weren't leaders. 
No, there's no woman in the Old Testament that had an ongoing prophetic ministry. No woman was a priest. No woman ever ruled over uh, uh, Israel as a queen. No woman ever wrote any of the Old Testament, New Testament. God gave spiritual responsibilities, spiritual responsibility, spiritual leadership to men. It's like he gave men the responsibility in the home to lead the family, to, to lead in society. He gave it to men. Likewise, in the church, he gave to men, to male leadership. In the history of the church, God has predominantly used men to lead uh, in the church. All the contemporary desires and contemporary non-biblical understanding of the role of women should not be brought into or imported into the church. Godly gifted women who desire to honor God with their life to serve him is a good and a great thing. But a godly woman cannot say, on one hand, she wants to serve and honor God with her life, and then on the other hand say, I'm going to violate what God says because I want to step out of God's designed plan for women that he has laid down for his church. And again, it happens to be his church in order to serve him by becoming an elder or a pastor. That's completely illogical. The issue is always role and function. And again, without making one inferior to the other, God calls upon both men and women to fulfill the roles and the responsibilities specifically that he has designed for them. Role and function is, is tied to the created order. It's not tied to giftedness. God created the man first, then he gave him the headship. And God created the woman to be his helper. If you were with us a few months ago, or you can look it up whenever Mother's Day was in May, uh, we taught on that. I taught on that, the idea of the word helper. Helper is an exalted title in the Bible because God himself is often called the helper, the helper of his people. Psalm 54 and 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In fact, 16 out of the 19 times the word is used in the Old Testament, it describes God. And God certainly is not weak or inferior. The word helper points to strength. The word helper points to the fact that God has what his people lack. Now, a believing man, a believing woman, or is a, a full uh, a believing woman is a full spiritual equal of a believing man has high value and dignity honor and worth created in the image of god an image bearer co-equal in the realm of salvation just a different role a different function and man needs a woman amen what if you're married it ought to be a loud amen right my wife's been gone a week i mean we can barely keep it together We need a helper. God is our helper. And God has given women to men to be their, their helper. In the matters, however, in the home and the church, God has established the headship of men. There's no such thing biblically. There's no such thing biblically as women pastors, women elders. I don't care what the SBC is promoting. There's no such thing biblically as women pastors, women elders. If you want to come and talk to me afterward, don't come and talk to me on this subject this morning. Okay, I'll address it with you some other time. But that's what the Bible says. In the, in the dimension of spiritual possessions and privileges, there's absolutely no difference between male and female. In God's church, again, God's church happens to belong to him. He is the one who set up how it's going to function. There's a difference in role and function. There's even a pattern seen in the Godhead of role and function. Right? So it's nothing unique. But rather than demeaning the position of the woman or keeping the woman... Uh, ignorant, barefoot, and pregnant, if you will, which was really the Jewish mentality at the time of 
the New Testament, early New Testament church, as at that time, women were not required to come to feasts. Most rabbis refused to give women any kind of greeting. Most rabbis would see it as a quote-unquote waste of time to instruct or even talk to a woman. So let me tell you the truth. It's biblical Christianity that has elevated the status of women to a position they don't know. They never knew in the ancient world into a position that most women throughout the world today don't know. Just turn your TV on and look at what's going on in the Middle East and how the women are running for absolute fear of their life in Afghanistan. It's biblical Christianity that has exalted the position of women. And it's biblical Christianity that has taken women out from a position of no longer just being possessions or property owned by their husbands or looked down upon by other men, but has raised them to the elevation of co-equals. And again, it was the Apostle Paul who said in this uh, 1 Timothy 2.11 passage, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But Paul again elevated the position of the woman by those words, let the women learn. Let the women learn. That's unique in his time, and I guarantee you it's unique in most of the world. Let the women learn. Let them be a part of the learning process. Why? Because they need to know about God. They need to know about Christ because they're co-equals in the realm of salvation. The only thing that they're not to do is to take authority over a man in the role of teaching. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, or I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain silent. I would also be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, unlike other Jewish rabbis who would not teach women, Jesus Christ did. In fact, it was to the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4 that he revealed the fact in most full sense that he was the Messiah. He discussed with her object or topics such as eternal life and the nature of true worship. Christ himself elevated the position of the woman, which again, non-religious, non-Christian religious systems in the world do not do even today. Now listen, we live in a time where the, uh, the position of a woman in the culture is completely under attack. I mean, womanhood itself is under attack with all this transgender madness. And sadly, much of the church is confused over the issue. Much of the church has bought into the modern unbelieving mindset, setting aside the authority of the word of God, and in its place has allowed an unbiblical, radical feminist agenda to enter into the church and to create more chaos and more confusion regarding the role of women in ministry and in the home. It's an unbiblical agenda that encourages women to be bold and assertive and confrontive and independent, to exert authority over and to take leadership roles that don't belong to them biblically, to act like men when God created them, to act like women, to be women. And it's utterly tragic that they are put into positions that they're ill-served to be in because God never intended them to be in those positions. And again, it's only in the Word of God that you find the true biblical design for womanhood. And it's only in obedience to the Word of God that women can realize their full potential by following the plan of their creator and designer as she gives glory to God by doing what he created her to do. And God has created women, not men. God has created women to bear children. And we got to get it right biblically. Because women have the great high calling, the great privilege of being the primary instruments of evangelism into their child's life. 
loving them, teaching them, encouraging them, continually pointing them to their need for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is something they cannot do if they're not in the home, which is something they cannot do if they don't think that has any value. To raise up the next generation of godly individuals to the worship and the glory of God in Christ is the greatest task, the greatest privilege on the planet. I mean, is raising your children up to honor and love the Savior a greater privilege than saying, well, I, I work at GM and I make fenders? I mean, I guess I understand GM's got to make fenders. I'm not begging that point, but you know what I'm saying? The culture has said, we flipped it on. Well, you can't be anybody unless you're out of the home. No, why? why? Boy, if at all possible, you can be in the home, be in the home. Cause, and do whatever you can to support your wife in that position. I understand everybody can't do that. I understand. But, boy, if you can, what a great privilege that is because now you get to speak truth into that little kid's life all the time, 24 hours, seven days a week. It's a great high privilege. All right, so women have been called to a high privilege. Find a church that practices male biblical leadership that reads the Bible, can understand it, actually says what it says, and means what it says. Number 10, last one. Find a church where each individual member of the congregation exercises their spiritual gifts. All right, where they use their spiritual gifts, they exercise their spiritual gifts, in a, a place where you can do likewise. Right, a place where you can serve, where you can love, grow in your love for each other. Uh, you, you need to find a place where you do not hide out for four years. You need to find a place where you can come and serve and be involved and, 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 and uh, to be blessed and to be a blessing. Everybody comes together. I mean, I heard you this morning. I mean, before I walked into the, to the, the room, the place was just a buzz. Everybody talking and encouraging each other. Right? And I trust godly conversations going on. That's the greatness of the body of Christ. And we have that great privilege to meet here for the moment, unhindered. And again, it's not happening everywhere around the world. All right, look, nobody's perfect. No church is perfect. We're all in the process. Find a church that wants to honor Christ in all that it does. Now, I know that's a lot. I just wanted to be an encouragement to you. I hope it is. You know, if you don't agree with something, you know, we can talk about it at some point. But just think about some of those things. Because, again, choosing a church is going to be the most, one of the most significant decisions you're ever going to make in your life. Now, if God brought you here and you're itching to get out the door, that's okay. Uh, um, and, and this is not the place for you. Or you're going to eventually come to that position. I understand that. Uh, you know, God bless you. I hope that you uh, have a good and a godly life. And uh, if we can ever encourage you and serve you, that's, uh, that's great. But if you decide to come here, then join in with the ministry and, and be a part of, of the body of Christ. All right, now let's turn our attention finally to the book of John. And I'm just going to, pretty much so you don't, like, uh, lose heart, I'm just going to primarily deal with verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow Rivers of living water. Now, in the context of the flow of John 7, you remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, one of three major feasts on the Jewish calendar. So, therefore, more than likely, there's tens, hundreds of thousands, perhaps people, uh, that have traveled from all of the, the region, Israel and beyond, and they're there at the Feast in Jerusalem. And Jesus has come to the Feast in the middle of the week. Because the religious authorities are seeking to kill him. And again, that exposes the profound sinfulness of the fallen human heart, the wretchedness of fallen man. 
rejecting God's great lift, gift of, of love, his only provision of salvation, that being the most wonderful person who ever walked the planet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is it that has their Jewish religious leaders so upset with him? What, what is it that have them so upset with him that they want to kill him? And I've told you repeatedly through this series, the answer is it's his words. It's his words. It's always his words. It's always what he says. It's always the claims that he makes. The fact that he is the Son of God, that he's been sent by the Father into the world as the only means of salvation. The fact that all men are in a desperate situation, separated from God, that all men are under God's condemnation, even the Jewish religious leaders. Because the Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. And Jesus has said that he has come to seek and save the lost. And I tell you what, men hate him for his words, but they probably hate him most for those words. He's come to seek and save the lost. The words of Christ are true. People don't like to hear that truth. Therefore, they hate him. They hated him then. They hated him then. They hated him. They hate him now. Jesus said, for unless you believe that I am he, meaning the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, the only Savior of the world, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's his words. So again, the most pressing question you'll ever have to answer that will have eternal consequences for your soul is, what do you say about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? What are you going to do with the person of Jesus? That's the question. Now again, to say he's a good man, that falls very short of the truth, far too short of the truth. Because Jesus in his earthly ministry has proved, and we're about six months away from the cross here, he has proved over and over the fact that he is uh, not just a man by his words, by his deeds, his miraculous supernatural power, the exercise of his power over sickness, death, disease, his power over the natural realm, his power over the supernatural realm. He's proved his divine nature by his grace, his compassion. He's proved over and over again the reality that he's more than just a mere man. Therefore, failing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of hardness of heart. It's an issue of men loving their sin. Unbelief, as I told you, it's evidence of men suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Unbelief is active evidence of men being held captive and blinded by the lies of Satan himself. So they can't see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He's come in the middle of the week, in the middle of the feast. He's gone to the temple, and he's immediately taken up a position of authority and began to teach. And the religious leaders and most of the people from the city of Jerusalem and many of the crowd, who've been come from all over the region, they flat out rejected him. They've already made up their minds. They refuse to acknowledge the reality of who he is, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God. Therefore, they refuse to repent. They refuse to admit that they're sinners in need of a Savior because they're men who hate the truth and men who hate their own souls. Now, in the previous week, last week, when we were looking through the verses before these, I said that men rejected Jesus due to a spiritually deadly combination. You might remember that. Misinformation misinterpretation of the scripture and popular legend. There were people who thought they knew the truth, but in reality they didn't know the truth because they didn't take time to find the truth. They thought they knew God, but in reality they didn't know God whatsoever. They don't know anything about God. They don't know anything about Christ. And now they've rejected him. 
And by rejecting him, rejecting the truth, they place their souls in eternal peril. You remember last time also, Jesus gave a tremendous warning. Look there at verse 33. I told you that God, although he is a merciful God, one day this mercy is going to come to an end. Most men fail to realize that time is running out. That one day it will be too late to believe in a saving fashion upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So the one who's come from heaven from the Father is going back to heaven and back to the Father. But again, heaven is not for everyone. Jesus says to the unbeliever, Jesus says to those who rejected him, Jesus says to those who hate him, where I am, you cannot come. And by those words, he's saying, heaven's not for everyone. Heaven is only for those who repent of their sin. Heaven is only for those who repent of their sin and believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, hell is the destination of every unbeliever. And according to the revelation that Christ gave to the Apostle John, the fate of every unbeliever, Revelation 14.10, is to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Every New Testament author acknowledges the doctrine of hell. Jesus had the most to say about it. And the existence of hell wasn't something that he questioned, debated, or defended. He certainly didn't apologize for it. He assumed the reality of hell, just as he assumed the reality of the resurrection, because he knew that hell is a real place of certainty. And when he talked about hell, his purpose was always to warn And he always used graphic words to portray hell's reality, words that were not meant to provide comfort, but words that were to frighten. According to Jesus, hell is a place of outer darkness. It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a fiery furnace. Hell is a place of unquenchable fires. Hell is a place of spiritual and bodily destruction. Hell is a place where there are endless torments. One writer says this, when you read about hell in the scripture, you can almost hear the agonizing wails, smell the smoke and burning sulfur, see the flames from the lake of fire, and feel the seething anger of the wicked as they gnash their teeth at the righteous judge. He goes on and he says, Jesus used metaphors to help us understand the horror of hell. Darkness represents loneliness, insecurity, the sense of being lost and distorted or disoriented. Fire represents the excruciating pain of burning. A lake of fire represents the sense of drowning, suffocating, taking the burning sulfur internally, as these vivid pictures of hell's environment should provoke a reasonable sense of fear in a normal thinking person, as no one can come away with the idea that hell is a tolerable place to spend eternity, end quote. And hell most certainly is a, a, a horrific, literal place of agonizing eternal torment with no way out no way of escape no hope where the wicked will suffer under the wrath of God throughout all of eternity eternity and eternal fires and everlasting punishment and I think perhaps the greatest 
horror of hell is an ever-accusing conscience that confronts you eternally with the fact that you didn't have to be there because Christ offered to you numerous times a way out, a way of escape, and you rejected it. So Jesus, when he gives this warning in verse 33, he says, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go with him who sent me. You shall seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Again, he's saying heaven's not for everyone. As everlasting hell, however, is a present reality for those who reject him. Again, John 8, verse 24, Jesus says, You shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. I told you last time a great quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Hell is the truth found out too late. Hell is the truth known too late. God is unspeakably merciful, no doubt, but there's a limit even to God's mercy. Jesus says, You shall seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come, is a warning statement of immense importance. Now, on the, on the heels of the reality of Christ leaving and the possibility, the reality of coming judgment, as he's going to, God is going to soon withdraw mercy, comes the most wonderful and marvelous invitation. Verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So the question again is, what are you going to do with Jesus? It's not enough just to say he's a good man. It's not enough to say, well, I admire him. It's not enough to say, well, I'm impressed by him. It's not enough to say kind things about him. All those kind of people that think he's a good man, that admire him, are impressed by him, say kind things about him, all those kinds of people are going to, send, are going to end up in the same hell that those who outright reject him and those who outright hate him. That's truth. You're going to have to deal with him. You're going to have to give, give an account for this invitation. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You're going to have to deal with his words. For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, you shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And there's not much time left. There's not much time left, and soon he's going to be gone. What do you do with those words? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Again, we're just six months away from the crucifixion. And the rejection of Jesus Christ is going to have reached a fevered, such a fevered pitch that Jesus, who is absolutely innocent of any offense, a bloodthirsty crowd, however, is going to scream for his blood and they're going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Then they're going to ask for a murderer, Barabbas, to be set free. So here we are. The last day. The great day of the feast. Jesus showed up in the middle of the week. He began to teach openly in the temple. He began to teach God's truth, God's doctrine, truth about sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Glorifying the Father in all that he said, all that he did. He continued to teach. He continued to instruct. He continued to invite, to entreat with a tremendous amount of patience and loving kindness. Those Jews that have rejected him, those Jews that are part of that crowd that are going to call for his blood, He's still pleading with them. John says at the beginning of the book, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But yet he still wants to be gracious. He's still extending God's mercy to sinful men. 
even on the last day of the great feast. He's still presenting words of truth, words of invitation, words of grace, words of mercy, words of the offer of forgiveness of sin on the last day. The last day of the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Now commentators are split over exactly what day this is, whether it's the seventh day or the eighth day, it's not clear. It's a different day, however, than the, the events previous in verses 40, or 14 to 36. Again, that Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, celebrated the wilderness wanderings of Israel in 40 years when they were in the, going through the wilderness. They lived in tents or booths, temporary housings. During that time, God protected them, cared for them, preserved them, gave them food and drink, gave them manna from heaven, water from a rock. In the end, that entire generation, save just a few, uh, would die in the wilderness and not enter into the promised land. But when they entered into the promised land, that bring, bring, brought forth the birth of the nation. God instituted the feast in Leviticus 23, an annual remembrance of this event. Time set in the fall. But again, look back to what God had done. And it also is a feast that actually looked forward to the harvest, the full harvest, the ingathering of the nation during the Messiah's uh, earthly kingdom. But the feast was characterized by a daily procession led by the high priest. And he would carry a pitcher of, uh, a golden pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam, and he would go to the south of the temple through the water gate and enter into the court, uh, into the court of the temple. And then there'd be three blasts from the sofar, uh, you know, a trumpet made out of a ram's horn, to mark uh, the joyous occasion. And water was taken from that pitcher and poured on the base of the altar. At the same time, another priest would take a pitcher of wine on the other side of the altar, which pointed to the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 12 and 3 says, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 44 says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the whole ceremony remembered the wilderness wanderings, remembered the water that God had provided the people at Meribah from the, from the rock. It was a ceremony that remembered God, a ceremony that remembered God delivers his people. It's God who saves his people. It's God who provides salvation. And when that water was poured out, the people would recite that passage that I read out of Isaiah 12, and they would sing out of the Hallel, Psalm 113, verse, uh, Psalm 113 to 118. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O servants of the Lord, praise his name, praise the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Uh, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the name of the Lord, this is great to be praised, etc. and so forth. The Hallel, we get hallelujah from, hymns of praise. So it was a tremendous joyous occasion, tremendous celebration. And this dramatic ceremony, this vivid picture of thanksgiving again for God, for his protection, perseverance, deliverance, salvation. But again, the apex of this celebration on a daily basis was when the high priest took that golden pitcher and poured out water on the altar. Now, I can't say it was dogmatic, certainly, but perhaps. Perhaps at that quiet moment, at the apex of the festival, when the high priest took the golden pitcher and began to pour out the water, perhaps it's that very moment when Jesus stood up and cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Obviously, a very dramatic moment in the ceremony, a very dramatic moment where Christ is drawing attention to himself. On the last day, the great day of the feast, the mercy of God for the salvation of the souls of men is going forth again 
one more time. In the context of those who have despised him. In the context of those who have, many of them, refused him. Again, it's the amazing grace of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that continues to entreat the sinner to come. The sinner who is rejected to come. On the last day of the great day of the feast. This is the last time that many people who are there in Jerusalem uh, at the feast, many of the pilgrims are ever going to see him. Because people are going to start going back to their homes. They're going to leave the next day or so. This is the last time they'll actually have an opportunity to hear his voice. The last time he'll ever have an opportunity to impress the truth upon their hearts. That again, apart from repentance and faith in him, they're going to die in their sins. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood. Rabbis, for the most part, sat when they taught. But he stands to make himself noticed, to make himself visible. He stands because of the deep, tender concern that he has for their souls, and he cried out. He yells at the top of his lungs to be heard. And the moment when everybody in the ceremony is holding their breath, as it were, in the drama of the celebration, perhaps with tears streaming from his eyes with an intense anxiety for the good of the souls of men, he pleads with the crowd. He cries out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In essence, he's saying, As thankful as you are for what God has done with the water that he provided in the wilderness and the satisfaction of the thirst that he provided for our forefathers, Now come to me. Come to me. Come to living water that quenches the longing of your soul. It's not the first time he's done that. It's not the first time he gave a public invitation for people to believe upon him. John 3, 16, Christ's word, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me who sent him has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but it passes from death to life. Come. It's not the first time that he used uh, water as a living, uh, uh, living water as an illustration with reference to salvation. Again, he did it back in John 4 with the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you a new living water. He used that metaphor in John 6 of himself being the bread of life. John 6 and 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, he's drawing from familiar Old Testament imagery out of John or out of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 12, Isaiah's prophecy, verse 51. The Jewish hearer would have been familiar with this. Isaiah 51, 1. Ho, everyone who's thirst, come to the water. You have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without cost. Incline your ear. Come, listen, that you may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he'll have compassion. The Lord will abundantly pardon. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's the gospel in one sentence. Again, the land is very dry. It's very arid. Water symbolizes satisfaction. Water is what is needed for life. You need water more than you need food. 
And Jewish prophets often use the phenomena of thirst as an analogy for the desperate spiritual needs of a man's soul, such as the need of salvation, the need of spiritual life. John wants us to understand that Jesus is actually not just at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus actually fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles. John 1.14, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt or tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. Paul says Jesus is the rock that the water of Israel was supplied for there in the barren desert, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Jesus is the bread of life. He said that, John 6. He is the true manna. So on the last day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he makes this public claim to be the source of living water, calling all men again to come to him and drink. Again, saying that he literally fulfills the feast that they were a part of. Again, it's another one of these lists of uh, claims that Jesus makes that doesn't allow him to put in the category of just a mere man. It's an astonishing claim that no mere man could ever make. An astonishing promise. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. No mere man can ever make that kind of claim except God come in the flesh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look how broad the invitation. If any man is thirsty, can't get any broader, any wider of a category. It's a universal call to salvation. It's as wide again and as broad as an invitation to salvation can get. If any man, if any man, even those in the room that are currently plotting his murder, if any man, anyone, again, the offer is extended to all men, to each of us. The word of the Savior says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The word of the Savior is, Whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. Come. Any man. Doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. Doesn't matter if you've uh, always gone to church, if you've come from the finest background, or you've come from an absolute, complete, unbelieving background. Doesn't matter if you're a convicted criminal. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Doesn't matter how bad your former life was. The hand of the Savior is wide open and he's offering you salvation. If any man, anyone, everyone who is thirsty, let him come. The offer is made to the religious, to the non-religious. Because all men have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All apart from repentance and faith in the Savior, all, all men are perishing. And all men are under the act of judgment of God, condemned already, as it says in John chapter 3. Just awaiting the eternal punishment, the sentence of eternal punishment to be exacted. Therefore, Christ to the perishing cries out loudly to the lost and he begs them, you need salvation. You don't just need ceremony, you need salvation. And there's only one place you can find salvation. There's only one place that you can find satisfaction for your soul. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The ones who are invited, everyone, the specific persons are the ones who are thirsty. Again, thirst is an analogy, a figure of speech, an expression to show those who recognize that they have a need. It's like hunger. 
something that we're aware of, something that we're conscious of, something we know we don't possess. There's bodily thirst, but there's also the thirst of the soul. So those who are thirsty, those who are acutely aware of their spiritual distress, those who are spiritually anxious, those who have come to an understanding of the holiness of God and their absolute sinfulness, those who are aware of their guilt before a holy God, those who value their soul, those who feel feel the the burning, intense, conscious desire for relief, if any man is thirsty. Do you want forgiveness of sin? Are you willing to be saved? Then the source of life invites you to come to him freely, find satisfaction. But you have to come. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. It's one of the simplest words in the English language. The word come, but it means to approach, to approach an object, approach a person, expresses an action and implies the will is in operation. Arthur Pink says to come to Christ means that you have to do with your heart what you would do with your feet if Christ were standing in bodily form before you. Come. Come to me. It's an act of faith. It intimates that you have turned your back upon the world, you've abandoned all your confidence and everything about yourself, and now you cast yourself empty-handed at the feet of the incarnate grace and truth. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. Again, the only way that you can have your spiritual thirst satisfied is to come to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to have a proper relationship with the living Lord God? Do you want to come out from under the wrath that your rebellion will put you under and has put you under? Do you want to be made pure and holy? Do you want to escape the punishment of your sin? If so, you have to come to Christ. Didn't say come to church. It said come to Christ. If any man is thirsty, Christ says, let him come to me. Trust me. Cast your soul upon me. Believe. Commit. Place all your burdens upon me. And you have to do so immediately. Why? Because time's running out. You may never have another opportunity. Let me tell you what. It's the voice of the devil inside your head that says, do this, repent, but do it tomorrow. It's not the voice of the Savior. Tomorrow is always the devil's playground. The command of the Scripture is today, if you hear the voice of the Savior, respond today, not tomorrow. You may walk from this building today and never return. Your soul may be required of you this very day because none of us knows how long we're going to live. The fool says not only in his heart there's no God, the fool says I can put off eternal matters until tomorrow. It's presumptuous sin because again, none of us knows how long we're going to live. If you're here this morning and you hear God's voice speaking today, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance, not tomorrow. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. And then he says, drink. Another figure of speech. Come take freely. Take it in. Drink of the full mercy of God, the pardon of God, the peace of God. Drink from the fountain of life, says the Lord Jesus Christ. No no man spoke like that. No prophet of Israel spoke like that. Because again, these are the words of no mere man. These are the words of the living God who's come among men. Eternal life is freely available if you want it. It's found only in one source, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one that can satisfy the longing of your heart. 
You could have a river flowing through the valley that you live in. If you never go to that river and take from its sustenance, you can't benefit from that river of life. Same thing, too, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you or never come to the Lord Jesus Christ unless you avail yourself of him, he can't save you. Because salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and in the person of Jesus Christ alone. There's a lot of people in life who get to a certain point. They realize that something's wrong, and then they turn to the wrong places. They turn to those things that can never satisfy the world, pleasure, drugs, alcohol, sex, money, fame, success. When the reality is Jesus Christ is your only hope. Whoever drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst again is what Jesus Christ says. Jesus Christ says, come. It's an invitation. And again, I warn you, hell is an eternal reality. Again, apart from the torment, the everlasting flames of fire, the fact that there's no escape or no hope, I think the most horrific thing about hell is the fact for those who are there, they're going to have a conscience accusing them. The fact that they didn't have to be there because Christ offered mercy to them and they rejected it. The Bible says the offer of mercy is available. The Bible says if you refuse to come to the one who's pleading, there's a severe punishment for those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified and insulted the spirit of grace. The Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God when God offers you life. 